was the 19th of December, 1970, in the upmarket London district of Belgravia. There's snow in the air and hopes of a white Christmas have lent a festive cheer to the capital. Just a stone's throw from Buckingham Palace, the streets around Belgrave Square are home to some of London's wealthiest elite. Lord Bernstein, the chairman of Granada Television, is one such resident, rubbing shoulders with politicians, diplomats, minor royals and business leaders. Yesterday, when Lord Bernstein jetted off on holiday to Bermuda, he left his grand London residence in Wilton Crescent in the capable hands of his long-serving butler, Julian Sesse. The tall, distinguished-looking 65-year-old has worked for Lord and Lady Bernstein for decades. He lives in the basement flat of their expensive Belgravia house and is often left in charge in his employer's absence. He enjoys both the responsibility and the freedom being in sole charge provides. Outside, sleet whips through the air as night falls. The tall street lamps dotted around the square are smartly trimmed with festive decorations. In the lower windows of the neighboring houses, elegantly festooned Christmas trees send a warming glow to the street outside. Sesse is no stranger to a night on the tiles, but he's glad he doesn't have to venture out into the cold tonight. Instead, he's in his cozy apartment, expecting the imminent arrival of a rather exciting young man. He would never dream of entertaining a lover at home while the Lord was in residence in the house above, but while the cat's away. Right now, humming along to a tune on the radio, Sesse is busy preening himself in preparation for his visitor. He's in good shape for his age, tall, straight-backed, and with a good head of hair, though that's a little more grey these days. Even though homosexuality has been officially decriminalised, thanks to the Sexual Offences Act of 1967, being a 60-something single gay man in London is still fraught with danger. The threat of arrest has mercifully gone, but attitudes don't change as quickly as laws, and Sesse is all too aware of the risks of inviting strangers into his home. Having spent most of his adult life in fear of discovery and disgrace, Sesse has always been discreet in his affairs. Of course, his employer's reputation could easily be sullied by scandal in the household staff. But shame and stigma aren't the only dangers that can come with these little moonlight meetings. Some of Sesse's closest friends and confidants have been badly stung by the men they've had relations with. Some have been violently battered and beaten, some robbed and others openly ridiculed. All too often, their aggressors are men who are unable to come to terms with their own sexuality when faced with it in the flesh. Sadly, self-loathing can frequently turn to violence. But the man Sesse is waiting for tonight is a known entity. He's not a regular lover, but he has visited a couple of times before. Their relationship is relatively straightforward, and Sesse is under no delusions that there is anything serious between them. Be that as it may, he also hopes it's more than just paying for a service. He always prefers to call any money that changes hands a gift. After all, a man in his position can afford to be generous. He has a good job, a good income, and nothing better to spend it on than a handsome young man who is happy to spend time with him. Glancing out of the window, the sleet is turning to snow, fluttering under the sulphur-yellow glow of the streetlights. There, halfway down the crescent, he sees his guest approaching the house. With one final check in the mirror, the tall, well-dressed butler climbs the stairs to the main front door of Lord Bernstein's mansion. 
He arrives in the hallway just in time to hear a sharp rap on the solid wood. Sese opens the door to let the man in, with a small smile tickling his lips. Leading his visitor down the stairs into his own basement apartment, Sese feels a frisson of excitement rush through him. His young friend is quite attractive. At just 26, the man is the picture of virility. Shorter than Sese, but strong and solidly built. The pock marks on his tanned cheeks, his stylish hand-wound moustache, and his mop of curly, dark hair all add to his allure. Little does Sese know that this will be the last visitor he receives, and the last lover he will ever meet. Before the sun rises tomorrow morning, Julian Sese will be dead, and his murderer will have fled the scene undetected. The difficult investigation into his murder falls to the experienced team at Scotland Yard. Given the clandestine nature of the relationships the victim has enjoyed, finding the true identity of his killer might prove next to impossible. But then, surely nothing is beyond the murder squad at Scotland Yard. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. Monday the 21st of December, a delivery driver from Granada Television arrives at Lord Bernstein's five-bedroom house on Wilton Crescent. He knocks on the door, and when he gets no reply, he peers through the downstairs window. There's no sign of life. He tries the door again. Still no reply. Noticing that the Sunday newspaper is still on the doorstep, with today's edition dumped on top, he assumes everyone must be away. Annoyed that he's been sent to deliver to an empty house, he has no choice but to drive away. Not long after the delivery driver leaves, Lord Bernstein's 55-year-old part-time cleaner arrives at the house for her morning work. She, too, finds the door locked, with no one answering her knocks. Unsure what to do, but knowing she needs to clean the house, she heads to a nearby phone box. Miss Hazelwood, Lord Bernstein's private secretary, is the only other person she can think of who has a key. When Miss Hazelwood hears of the cleaner's predicament, she hurries over to open up. The two women open the door, stepping inside cautiously, calling Sese's name. There is no response in the main house. It's 24-year-old Miss Hazelwood who heads down the inner stairs to Sese's quarters first, still calling out to him. What she finds down there 
shocks her to the core. The living room is splattered with blood. The sofa, walls and floors all stained. There is more blood in the kitchen and some significant staining on the floor outside the bathroom. Panicking now, Miss Hazelwood tries the bathroom door, only to find it locked tight. Something terrible has happened here. Horrified, she rushes back upstairs and phones 999. An ambulance and two local policemen arrive shortly after 11am. Having assessed the scene inside the basement flat, the police quickly forced the bathroom door open, noting that it had been locked from the outside. On the floor inside, still dressed in his characteristic crew neck sweater and a pair of trousers, is Julian Sesse. His lifeless body lays in a pool of blood, and he's been partly covered up with a large but very bloody bath towel. On closer examination, they discover that his throat has been cut and he has multiple stab wounds to his head and chest. His stomach has also been cut open, a far deeper wound, as though by a different blade. Recovering their composure after the initial shock of finding the body, the officers look for other clues in the bathroom. It doesn't take them long to locate the murder weapons. A knife and a meat cleaver are both found lying in the toilet bowl of all places. What kind of killer carries out such a frenzied and brutal attack and then dumps the weapons right here for all to find? The nature of the murder, as well as the high-profile owner of the house, mean that the case is sure to draw public attention. Local police, with two other murder cases on their books already, are quick to pass the investigation straight up to the detectives on the murder squad at Scotland Yard. His 50-year-old detective chief superintendent, John Ginger Hensley, who was assigned the case. By 12.30pm, not even two hours after the butler's body was found, Hensley and his assistant arrive at the scene. Conducting a meticulous search of the property, they find a pair of blood-stained trousers in the washing machine, as yet unwashed. Far too small to belong to the deceased, they must be the killers. Not only has the perpetrator made no attempt to cover their tracks or hide the murder weapons, they've left their own clothes behind. Clearly, this was not a premeditated attack, but one of high passion, perhaps even panic. Perhaps the killer is confident he will never be found. Either that, or he knows nothing of how the police work. There's evidence everywhere. The wardrobe in Sese's bedroom is ajar, leading police to conclude that the killer also must have stolen a pair of his victim's trousers before fleeing the scene. Back in the bathroom, the small meat cleaver and knife are carefully retrieved from the toilet bowl. Moving into the blood-soaked kitchen, DCS Hensley realises that this is where the attack began. Both weapons from the bathroom match a set of blades in the drawer here. The blood patterns suggest that Sese initially tried to defend himself before attempting to run away. Following the trail of blood, it looks as though his killer caught up with him in the living room, where he slit his throat. After that, Sese must have been dragged to the bathroom. Was his attacker trying to hide the body and murder weapons? They've made no attempt to clean up the blood though, so why bother to lock the body in the bathroom? It all seems wild and confused, or at least that's what it looks like. You never know the lengths felons will go to to throw investigators off the scent. Hensley remains open-minded. 
Searching through Julian Sesay's possessions, detectives find a number of letters and notes which show him as a kind and generous man. He is also clearly highly regarded by his employer. The correspondence also reveals much about his personal life, including the fact that he was homosexual and was in the habit of picking up young men and entertaining them. In many cases, it would appear he has paid them for sex. This is not the first murder of a gay man DCS Hensley has seen, and he knows right from the off just how much this could complicate things. He and his team know that this segment of London society is secretive, to say the least. Very few men are ever willing to share their secrets, and he doesn't blame them. A murder this brutal of a man of relative standing should be fairly straightforward to solve. Usually, friends, family and neighbours will be only too keen to share any suspicions they may have. But the fact that the victim is homosexual means that DCS Hensley knows he's likely to hit a wall of silence. If Sese's killer was a lover, a friend, or even a male escort, there's a decent chance the villain is known to one of Sese's other acquaintances. But getting anyone to name him will be very difficult indeed. From the collection of correspondence they find, they have a list of names, addresses, and phone numbers, all people well known to the victim. As there is no sign of forced entry, it's highly likely that Sese knew his killer, or at least invited him in. Could his name be among these letters? He's as good a start as any for tracking down their suspect. As Home Office pathologist Professor Keith Simpson removes the body for post-mortem, DCS Hensley returns to Scotland Yard. He leaves a team of forensic scientists to comb through every inch of the house, dusting for fingerprints and taking photographs to add to the evidence they've already found. Elimination prints are taken from the cleaner, Miss Hazelwood, and anyone else with access to the property. Lord Bernstein will be put through the same process too on his return from Bermuda. The hard work of investigating this gruesome murder is about to begin. The post-mortem reveals that Sese was likely killed late on the Saturday night or in the early hours of Sunday morning. There's evidence that he'd had sexual intercourse with a man prior to his death. The pathologist also determines that the cause of death was shock and loss of blood following the frenzied attack with both blades. But as for clues to the identity of his murderer, there's nothing. And as far as motivation goes, it's anyone's guess at this point. It's time to start asking some uncomfortable questions. As detectives dig into the list of names and addresses they uncovered in Sesay's apartment, DCS Hensley and his small team set about their very discreet inquiries. Exactly as Hensley predicted, they are met with understandable hostility, nervousness and secrecy. Few of the men they speak to are willing to divulge any information. It's as much as he can do to get them to admit to even knowing Julian Sesse. Naturally, they all insist they knew nothing of his death, and these are the helpful ones. Many just slam the door in his face the moment he mentions Sesse's name, although some are more approachable and seem to express deep sympathy and profound shock at hearing the news. None have anything to share that can help to find Sesse's killer. DCS Hensley and his team grow increasingly frustrated as alibi after alibi checks out. After two full days of inquiries, all leads have fizzled out to nothing. All the while, 
Hensley well knows the killer is making plans, constructing his own alibi, destroying evidence, perhaps even fleeing the city. The clock is running. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen for free only on Spotify. Despite extensive door-to-door inquiries in Wilton Crescent and the surrounding streets, no other witnesses come forward to report any suspicious movements on Saturday the 19th of December. Apparently, not a single neighbour saw any visitors arrive or leave. Only one sole witness mentioned seeing what they describe as a foreign-looking man in the area around the time of the murder. But with no further information, that man could be anyone. And being foreign is hardly a crime. Equally, any queries posed to Cesse's family are met with embarrassment and hostility. If his family knew about his sexuality before his death, they're certainly not letting on here. And they make it absolutely clear that they know nothing of his life, and more importantly, they don't want to know. This is all deeply frustrating for DCS Hensley. He is a terrific all-round investigator, highly commended for his many arrests of armed robbers, safe blowers, murderers, fraudsters, and drug dealers. He's much admired, and rightly so. He's caught a lot of bad guys. But sometimes, solid detective work can only take you so far. Every good detective needs to catch a break now and then. Just as he's beginning to worry that this will be one of those rare cases which eludes him, he gets the stroke of luck he needs. On the 23rd of December, a young woman living in Tufnell Park calls the emergency services. She's agitated and upset, saying that she has important information. She asks for the police to come to her address Two local officers drive around to interview her, and when she reveals her explosive story, they call DCS Hensley straight away. Reviewing the interview notes, DCS Hensley is intrigued. This young Irish woman called Jean Fitzgerald is a 22-year-old waitress in a local cafe. Having seen the story about the murdered butler in the evening papers, she's come forward to notify the police that she knows Julian Sesse. She met him, she claims, through her boyfriend, a Moroccan gentleman called Mustafa Bassein. She and 26-year-old Bassein have been together for a year or so. He's trained as a male nurse, but is currently unemployed, and he's been living with her in her bedsit for several months now. Fitzgerald claims that she and Bassein went out for drinks in the West End on Saturday the 19th of December. At some point in the evening, Bassein went off and phoned Sesse to make an arrangement to visit him later that evening. When he came back to their table, he told her he was going to visit Sesse to try and get some money off him. When asked about the nature of Bassein and Sesse's relationship, she apparently looked uncomfortable. 
apparently admitting that she's not a fan of her bisexual partner's activities with other men, but she understands that he usually gets well paid for his services. And besides, they always need the money. According to this young woman's statement, Bassein left the pub at closing time around 11pm on the Saturday night and headed over to Belgravia to meet with Sesay. She, meanwhile, went back to their flat in Tufnell Green, alone. This revelation is an unexpected breakthrough for the team from Scotland Yard. They waste no time calling Miss Fitzgerald in for further questioning. It may all come to nothing. They've had plenty of disgruntled girlfriends giving false statements in the past. But this Bassane character hasn't come up in their inquiries before. At the very least, he's now a person of great interest. This new lead gives DCS Hensley a glimmer of hope. Meanwhile, back in Belgravia, the crime scene has now been fully assessed. Having checked the contents of the property, Lord Bernstein's private secretary confirms that nothing has been damaged or stolen in the main house. The only thing she's noticed missing is 80 pounds in cash, which had been in a drawer in Lady Bernstein's bedroom. 80 pounds is a decent month's wages for the average man, but is it enough to kill for? Hardly seems likely. Surely if Sesay's killer murdered him for his employer's money, he would have taken other, more expensive items from the property. With no sign of forced entry and nothing missing from the house, robbery gone wrong is not the most likely motive. As far as DCS Hensley is concerned, the attack feels more like a crime of passion. A known man enters the butler's home and for some reason proceeds to violently attack him. But what could have happened between the two men to provoke such a frenzy? The clue to unpicking this case might well lie in the evidence the young Irish waitress, Jean Fitzgerald, has to share. She suggested her boyfriend was offering sex for cash to Sesay. Could the transaction, one that's happened several times previously without drama, have gone horribly wrong on this occasion? When Jean Fitzgerald arrives to give her statement, she has a rich tale to tell. Slight of build, with mousy hair and a nervous demeanour, Jean looks genuinely traumatised to have anything to do with this awful crime. DCS Hensley does his best to settle her nerves, plying her with a warm, sweet tea before beginning his questioning. According to Jean, she didn't hear from Bassane again after he left her in the West End at 11 o'clock on the Saturday night. It wasn't until 9pm on the Sunday night that he phoned the bedsit saying he wanted her to come to the Bernstein mansion straight away. She says he sounded upset and angry on the phone. Something in the way he spoke, she says, made her fearful. So she refused to go. This caused him to fly into a rage and he began shouting at her. She says he even threatened to kill her if she didn't go to the Wilton Crescent address. DCS Hensley is taken aback. Has Bassane threatened her like this before? Is he prone to violence? And what was so important that she had to join him at the house? Jean admits that Bassain has a fierce temper and has threatened to hit her or hurt her in the past. For such a timid woman, DCS Hensley can see a fire in her eyes when she talks about it. Jean is clearly no pushover. She tells him that she genuinely doesn't know why he wanted her to go to the property, but she wasn't about to be shouted at like that. She ignored his threats and told him she wouldn't be going. This seemed to deflate his anger completely. He didn't pursue the request. Just before he hung up, 
She says he told her to pack all his clothes for him as he needed to go away for a while. She now tells Hensley that when Bassane finally arrived at their bedsit, he had scratches on his neck and blood on his shoes. He claimed he cut himself on some glass, but she says she didn't believe him. The other thing she noticed was that he was wearing some new trousers that were far too big for him. Too scared to go to sleep with him in the house, she claims that she sat up with him all night instead while he drank and sobbed. She doesn't reveal what he spoke about, but Jean tells Hensley that he was racked with guilt and self-pity. The detective listens attentively. Every element of the case, including the physical, seems to have suddenly come together. It's the perfect witness statement. And yet, DCS Hensley finds himself slightly reluctant to take it all at face value. DCS Hensley knows from experience that when a witness statement seems too good to be true, it usually is. Perhaps he's just got lucky and this steely young Irish woman is just doing her civic duty. Perhaps she's simply terrified of her murderous boyfriend. Or perhaps there's more going on than meets the eye. He prompts her to continue. On the morning of Monday the 23rd of December, Bassane apparently went out to buy a newspaper and when he came back, he told her he had to return to his native Morocco as his mother was ill. She says she went with him to a travel agent on the high street where he paid £44 for a single flight to Casablanca. She says he also exchanged £50 into Moroccan dirhams. She doesn't know where he got that kind of money from. Hensley can well imagine. Was this the cash he took from Sesse or from Lady Bernstein's bedroom? More pieces of the jigsaw seemed to fall neatly into place. Jean says she accompanied Bassane to Heathrow Airport later that day, where he left on a flight to Morocco at 3.10pm. Before he boarded, he gave her an address in Morocco and asked her to cut out and send any newspaper stories that mentioned his name. She says it was only when she saw the reports of Sesse's murder that she figured out what he'd done. And that's why she came forward. Now, DCS Hensley is a good judge of character, having heard more than his fair share of false evidence, lies and fabrications in his career. In his estimation, Jean Fitzgerald is telling the truth about her boyfriend. There are simply too many elements she knows, the stolen trousers, the money, the scratches on his neck, that give credence to her tale. Jean's statement is just the breakthrough that DCS Hensley and the Scotland Yard team need. Their inquiries to date have yielded nothing, but all of a sudden, they have not only a suspect, but a reliable witness too. Based on Jean Fitzpatrick's statement, DCS Hensley sends a couple of men to search the area around his flat, looking for the bloodstained shoes and the stolen trousers that Jean has told them he was wearing. Lo and behold, out in the busy streets of Tufnell Park, it takes police almost no time to find the items stashed in a dustbin very close to the flat Bassane shared with Jean. The shoes and trousers are rushed to the forensic labs for testing. This is Hensley's chance to find categorical proof that Bassane was in Sesse's flats when he died. The blood on the shoes does indeed prove to be a match for Sesse's. This evidence should be more than enough to get an arrest warrant but DCS Hensley is now faced with a new challenge. They have their suspects. They even know his Casablanca address. The problem is, there is no extradition treaty in place between the UK and Morocco. So there's almost nothing Scotland Yard can do 
to actually bring him into custody. Julian Sesse's killer has successfully fled the country and will be safe so long as he stays in Africa. Nonetheless, Scotland Yard puts in an application for extradition. On the 23rd of December, just four days after Sesse's murder, a warrant for Mustafa Bassein's arrest is made. Detectives issue a statement to the press, giving a description of Bassein. If he does manage to come back into the UK undetected, perhaps a member of the public will recognise him and tell the police. Hoping that he'll return after things have cooled off, Hensley puts a watch duty on Jean's flat. If Bassein turns up here, he'll be arrested immediately. But Bassein doesn't return. In fact, he doesn't leave Morocco. Scotland Yard are left cursing in frustration. The investigation was just too slow. Too many closed doors, too many dead-end interviews. Once again, in spite of Hensley's best efforts, he finds himself waiting and praying for another lucky break. DCS Hensley and his assistant are among the small handful of people who attend Julian Sesse's funeral. Perhaps because every sordid detail of the butler's private life have come to light during the investigation, few others choose to pay their respects. Just as no one wanted to speak to DCS Hensley during his inquiries, so the same secrecy and silence accompanies Sesse to his grave. Even his family refuses to come to the service. A kind and generous man in life, he's been shamed and shunned after his own brutal murder. If even one of his friends, lovers, colleagues or family members had spoken up earlier, they may have found out about his relationship with Bassein. They might even have been able to catch the murderer before he fled the country. To say Hensley is disappointed would be an understatement. For him, justice should be served regardless of the age, race or sexual preferences of the victim. With the arrest warrant still in place, all the team can do is wait for Bassein to leave Africa, if he ever will. DCS Hensley moves on to other investigations, and Sesse's case slips into the annals of the unsolved, despite police knowing with almost 100% certainty who the killer is. It's not until 1972, two years after the Sesse case has been put on ice, that Scotland Yard receives a call from police in Holland. They tell detectives that they've just arrested a man called Mustafa Bassein for immigration offences. Thanks to an alert on Interpol's system, they've quickly realised that he is wanted for murder in Britain. Fortunately for Scotland Yard, there is an extradition treaty between Holland and the UK. Arrangements are rapidly made to bring Bassein to Britain to face charges. Lady Luck has struck again, as well as an efficient cross-European anti-crime network. It's DCS Henley's assistant, DS Davis, who flies out to Rotterdam to collect the prisoner. Mustafa Bassein, it turns out, is actually the son of a well-respected family. His father is a high-ranking official in the Moroccan Foreign Office. But 28-year-old Bassein is distinctly average. Medium height and build, with a heavily pockmarked face, He's unemployed and drifting. D.S. Davis wastes no time bringing him back to the yard. Settling in the front row of the plane back to Heathrow, shackled together, D.S. Davis is confident they have their killer. A concerned air stewardess 
suggest they take the cuffs off in case there is an emergency during the flight. But DS Davis isn't about to let the Moroccan out of his sight. If the plane crashes, we're all in trouble, love, he replies, dismissing her concerns. But the plane does not crash, and a little over an hour after takeoff, Mustafa Bassein is safely on UK soil, ready to stand trial. The trial of Mustafa Bassein finally begins on the 8th of February 1973 at London's Central Crime Court. Bassein pleads not guilty to murder and also denies stealing £80 from Lady Bernstein's bedroom. Given evidence on his own behalf, he admits he did spend the evening with Mr. Sesse, but he swears he's no murderer. He says the butler was in fine health when he left him on the Sunday morning. Then he makes an astonishing claim. He suggests that when he mentioned this nighttime liaison with Sesse to Jean Fitzgerald, she flew into a wild, jealous rage, shouting and threatening to harm the old man. He announces dramatically, she threatened to smash his face. Bassain tells the court that she stormed out of their shared apartment and didn't return until much later. He claims that when she did come home, she was trembling and upset. She apparently told him she was sick. In her defense, D.S. Davis, who had been part of Jean's interview team, refutes these claims. Jean Fitzgerald, he says, wasn't involved in the murder in any way. She is a timid, unworldly Irish girl. It's an interesting accusation that the golden witness is in fact the perpetrator or possibly an accomplice. Some might even be minded to entertain his story if the evidence against Bassein wasn't so overwhelming. The jury agrees with D.S. Davis's assessment of Jean's character. Only four days after the trial started, on the 12th of February, Mustafa Bassein is sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Julian Sesse. At a time when crimes against homosexual men, even ones as serious as murder, rarely ever saw a conviction, this successful international investigation is a triumph for Scotland Yard. Against all the odds, the murder squad have got their man and justice for the peers' butler. After serving 11 years of his sentence, Bassein is released and deported to his homeland. DCS Hensley always privately believed that Bassein had tried to blackmail Sesse and that when the butler refused to be intimidated, Bassein grew angry and picked up the knife. What would have happened to the hapless Jean Fitzgerald if she'd actually obeyed her boyfriend and gone to the mansion the next morning? Would he have successfully managed to implicate her in the murder? Her distrust of his motives may just have saved her from a dark fate. The actual truth of what happened in 32 Wilton Crescent that night may never be known, but thanks to the team at Scotland Yard, at least another violent killer was brought to justice. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential, legendary inspector Robert Fabian is summoned to the scene of a savage murder in London's neon-lit West End. When a beautiful club singer known as the Black Butterfly is stabbed to death in her own home, Fabian soon discovers she kept her fair share of secrets. But despite the carnage he finds at her home, he has nothing to go on beyond some vague mention of a stranger she met at her club. 
stood amid shadows, secrets, and pools of blood. Can Fabian of the Yard find his man? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sean Coleman. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.